Welcome to the Vox Community Podcast. Learn more about the Vox Community at voxoc.com. Join us at 10 a.m. on Sundays in Placentia, California at the El Dorado Performing Arts Center. Good morning, everybody. Hello. Good morning. Good morning. We're glad you're here. Good morning. Good morning. Just seen a good morning. Who are you looking for? Katie Jackson, are you here? Justina is right here. Katie, you don't think she's here yet? Okay, make sure you interrupt me when she comes, all right? All right, that's my wife, Justina. Yep, she's got her hair cut, and uh, she's looking, looking particularly foxy today. So it's going to be a short service. Um, If, uh, if this is your first time with us, welcome. You can find out more about our community at uh, voxoc.com. The word vox is Latin for voice, and, uh, and all things sound cool when they're said in Latin. Oh, and I love the lady that's wrapped up in blankets. I love it. Young lady, what's it like to be cold? What is that, what is that like? I've, it's been a long time since I've had that sensation. Um, so we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here. Now, if, for, for whatever reason, you turn out to be a glutton for punishment and come back to this little community, uh, next week we are shifting, you got your, I like it, I like it, got the, got the colors on, we are shifting to a 9 o'clock service and an 11 o'clock service, all right? So if you come at 10, you're going to love the end of the 9 o'clock service, and we'll try to give you some coffee and invite you to stay for the beginning of the 11 o'clock service. But uh, so, so none of you will remember this because you have big, bigger and better things to think about than what time we're meeting on Sunday morning. So we, we put a little something together to kind of visually give you visual reminders that next week we have a 9 o'clock service and 11 o'clock service. Turn your eyes to the screen, please. You think it's one yogurt. You think it's one yogurt, but it's two yogurts. So you think it's one service, but now it's two services, all right? So that's, yep, yep, that will help you. So if you see yogurt, if you see, um, if you see cats, if you see any of those things, those will serve as visual reminders this week, 9 and 11. And, and why we're doing it is we're a big fan of empty seats, uh, and we're big fans of people that sit in the back row, and the back row will end up filling up. And uh, we're big fans of letting the folks who for four months have been watching our children who have not been able to come to service, we're huge fans of them getting an opportunity to do that. So that is next week. Now, to help facilitate this, we have these little invitations. Um, we started this little community with something we call the Friends and Family Service, where, where all of those who... Uh, we're launching this thing. We brought our friends and family and asked them for feedback. And so our encouragement to you uh, is uh, if you're ever in the mood to uh, invite somebody to a community like this, the next two weeks, I think it'd be really uh, good to do that. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I have, because we're, massive preparations are, are undergoing to double the effort that it takes to pull this off. I had to go get a new outfit of bay shorts and a black shirt. And so that's, I mean, just right there tells you how serious we are about this, all right? All right, so you got that, correct? All right. Um, we have been uh, inviting people to text in questions. Um, and, uh, and, and so if you today and all of the craziness have things you're wondering about, you can text them into this number here. Boom, look at that, like magic. Uh, so let's do let's do some uh, let's do some ones from last week real quick. Here we go. We're big fans of people that ask questions. Who is this Gary that keeps telling me I can't eat or drink in church? All right, put up put up the picture. Michael, can you grab that drink on stage, Oh, that's funny. Oh, that's funny. I don't know I don't know who put that there, but clearly this is not allowed. Yep. Uh, and, and those aren't real candles. So Gary, that's Gary right there. All right, Gary, so there, it, how the authority of our church works, it's very simple. There's Jesus, and then there's Gary. Or as we call him, Jesus. And, um, and, and Gary, 
uh, is uh, the facilities director for the school district. And he runs a tight ship, which means uh, we're always in trouble with Gary. So that's, that's a great question. Secondly, next question. I love it. Next question. You paint uh, the picture of a God who loves us enough to run into a burning building, even if we were in there out of rebellion and sinning. This is from a couple of weeks ago. How does that picture change, if at all, for his children who should know better, yet continue to live a life of sin and active rebellion against his ways? That's a phenomenal question and worthy of a very long answer, but here's the 30-second answer I would give. God is relentlessly, passionately, uh, and undeniably in pursuit of, of people. So it doesn't matter what you call yourself, it doesn't matter where you're coming from, it doesn't matter what you've done, out of a fervent love, God pursues us. There is a point when God exercises judgment, but that judgment is out of love. And here's the judgment. Are you ready? Romans chapter 1 tells us here's God's judgment, at least one expression of it. Here's God's judgment. God's judgment is when he gives us what we want. So the biblical phrase for this is giving over. Hey, good morning. Uh, and, and in Rome, I'm sorry, just hello. I can see everything, and the ADD in me just it cries out to like, man, that's some great facial hair, and, um, and that's USC shirts they must have won, and you guys are, aren't sitting normally where you sit, and so that, because you're over there usually, aren't you? No. Well, then maybe I'm in the wrong spot, because you always feel much... <laughs> So, so what do parents do when their kid's in absolute rebellion? The kid is stealing from the home, using the money for drugs. The kid is abusing the trust of the parents. What do you do out of love at some point? At some point, you stop enabling them, correct? You give them what they want. Um, and the biblical picture of judgment is that, yes, for those of us uh, who know God, we are still loved by him, we're still forgiven by him, but God, out of passionate love, will give us what we want. And we'll see the emptiness and the futility of what it is to chase after those things. And so this is, I've seen loving parents have to do that with kids, and it's out of love that they do it. To me, this is another expression of the way God loves us, is that if it's really what we're after, God gives us the freedom to go pursue it. God gives us over to it. And so the hope is that at some point, like the prodigal son, we'll wake up and go, what am I doing? What, why am I settling for this when so much more is offered? So huge and great question. Next. I didn't grow up in the church. I've been a follower of Jesus for six years. Recently, I've been questioning a lot of things that I just initially accepted. You're the only one. <laughs> one thing I continue to have a bit of unrest about is the Trinity concept. I see verses like, the Father is greater than I. I mean that's coming from Jesus' mouth. So how do you explain that God is Jesus and Jesus is God when Jesus himself separates himself from his Father? I hear analogies and I've heard it explained in different ways, but I just don't get how we believe in this concept that seems to be an interpretation of Scripture since, as you know, the word Trinity never appears in Scripture. All right, now, none of these are questions that we can do prior to a teaching and do them justice with, correct? Like, explain the Trinity. How does God's judgment reflect his love? Gary, how do you how do, you do any of those justice uh, in a couple of minutes? This one, the word, the, you're right, the word Trinity doesn't appear, but there are three strands of Bible teaching that force us into this concept. The first strand is this. All throughout the scriptures, the announcement is there's one God. Not many gods, there is one. The second strand of teaching is that God is God, and that Jesus is God, and someone called the Holy Spirit is God. All right? One God, Jesus is God, Father is God, Holy Spirit is God. Next week we'll talk about why Father and Son imagery is used. And you can think, well, sweet, that's one God who wears like three different masks, right? Father in the Old Testament, Jesus in, in the Gospels, and then Holy Spirit now. The problem is, and, and you rightly point this out, question asker, is that there are occasions in the Bible when they all three appear simultaneously. So when Jesus is baptized, 
A voice from heaven speaks. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus. So you have Father, Son, and Spirit all interacting simultaneously as God, yet in some way different personalities. Now, if you don't understand it, welcome to Christian theology. I just want you to know this wasn't a later add to Christian theology. This was forced onto the earliest interpreters, and they were Jewish. Their Judaism was there as one God. And when they started ascribing divinity to Jesus, they still held that there was one God. So the way I've heard it explained is, the, is just this, and this will raise more questions than answers, and maybe this is worth a whole teaching someday. There is one what and three who's. There is one Godness shared by three persons. So how many people share humanity? How many people share humanness? Billions, correct? So we're all not chairs. There's a humanness thing that we all individually participate in, correct? So there's one Godness shared by three persons is the idea. Now, that clears it right up, correct? False. All right, next. What should be the human reaction to a spouse who continues to sin and hurt and cause pain? The human reaction is grief. And it depends on the hurt and the pain. If the hurt and the pain is abusive, then the human reaction is to get out of that situation. To protect yourself, to, to get restraining orders, to do whatever you've got to do legally to protect yourself. I'm not going to get into the question of divorce and remarriage on this, because holy cow, we've got to start the teaching. But it depends what the nature of the hurt is. I don't think there's a married couple in here that hasn't experienced seasons where we're causing each other pain and hurt and grief. So part of, it, the, part of the answer is, well, it's normal when two fallen people get together and decide you know, to work this out. Secondly, we never want to be a community that pretends that Jesus' people have perfect marriages. We want to be a Jesus community that says, no, 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 Jesus intends for us and intends for marriage to be a place where we're working out the refining of character, um, the practice of love of neighbor, or sometimes love of enemy. Um, you know, all of those like incredibly important things in the kingdom of God. Marriage is a place where all of that happens. But thirdly, I would say this. If there is stubborn and persistent hurt uh, and, and rebellion, um, we have to triage that in some way or another. So we're big fans of marital counseling. We're big fans of intervention. We're big fans of folks that come in and help provide a third perspective. But if it's serious enough pain and grief, um, then we encourage you to get the heck out of there and protect yourself. All right? Lastly, my Lord, you guys, how am I? does God know the future? And if so, how does it play into the free will of man? All right, let's go to John 3.16 for crying out loud. All right, I, so, does God know the future? The scripture seems to indicate that he does, but what he knows are the free choices of people. If I set before Seth Erie, my youngest, if I set before him ice cream or broccoli, does he have a free choice? Am I compelling him? But do I know exactly what he's going to choose? Yeah. Now, this is not a good answer because it's the nature of freedom philosophically that we've got to get into. And there are three different schools of thought called determinism, compatibilism, and incompatibilism about how free will and God's foreknowledge interact. And we're not going there right now. Go to John 3.16. Here we go. Oh, my goodness. You guys are amazing. And maybe we should do a whole teaching on these things because I know none of the answers are great answers because they're such big concepts. But... The reason we do this is I just want to say, really, Mrs. Erie? Katie, are you here? What do you got, Mrs. Erie? All right, so John 3, 16. <laughs> oh, okay. So we're going phrase by phrase through this sucker. 
Uh, we've looked at for God so loved the world. Today we're going to look at that he gave. Now, to look at that he gave, we're going to have to do about 20 minutes of horrendous background. If you are not a follower of Jesus, if you are new to the Bible, this is why you don't like the Bible. The stuff we're going to get into right now is the reason why you do not ever open this thing. Okay, so just be prepared for that. All right? 20 minutes begins now. Let's go to Genesis chapter 12. Okay, now if you don't have a Bible, wonderful. We will put everything up here. Now, we meet a guy early in the book of Genesis named Abram. Abram gets renamed Abraham. Abram has a wife named Sarah, but her previous name before she was renamed by God was Sarai, I guess was how, is how you'd say it. And we meet them in Genesis 11. Go ahead and put Genesis 11 up. You stay in Genesis 12. So this is, this is the first intro we get to a guy named Abram. Abram and that guy, both married, the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. Now I'm going to call him Abraham and Sarah from here on out. Now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. So the first thing we know about Abram is that he's married, but he's married to a woman who is unable to conceive. And in the ancient world, that was considered the judgment of the gods. She had one job. That was to bear children, and it was held to be her fault that she couldn't. Okay? So that's the first thing you know about this. Now, Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, and like this is all we know about Abram so far, but this turns out to be the singular focal point that the rest of the Bible unfolds. Said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. So what's that mean? To have a nation, you have to have what? Descendants. And what do we know about Abram and Sarah? They're barren. So the first promise is, I'm going to give you lots of descendants. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed, what? Through you. So, what's God's answer to evil in the world? I'm going to call this guy Abram, send him to a land I will show him. He and his wife are barren. I'm going to promise them children. I'm going to promise them land. And I promise that through them, all of the world will be blessed. The rest of the Bible is the outworking of that. Right? Truly. Everything that comes after is going to reference that if you're paying attention to the cues. All right? It is absolutely the most central promise that the rest of the Bible unfolds. And it doesn't feel like huge to us. But this promise and Abraham's and Sarah's barrenness propel the story forward in some compelling ways. Go to Genesis 15. We'll join you there. Now this is where it gets a little weird. All right? You're thinking, it's been weird the whole time. Genesis 15. Now, decades go by. And Abraham still does not have a kid. God's promise is that I'm going to give you kids. Abraham does not have a kid, and decades are going by. Now they're so old, even if she could have children, they're past childbearing age. Because I don't know if you know this about God, but God, his, God's timing isn't always our timing. I don't know if you've ever known this. God sometimes feels a little slow. Anybody? Sometimes? I've never, I've never like, looked at God and said, God, man, that was really quick. Not once. Except when I prayed something like, God, humble me. And then, boom! <laughs> or God, give me a wife. Genesis 15. After this, so this is decades forward. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. 
Don't be afraid, Abram. I will be your shield. I will be your very great reward. Now, this is referencing the fact that Abram just defeated four kings, and the kings offered them plunder. Abram refused and said, I'm not going to take any of your plunder so that no one else can say that you helped me along the way except my God. God comes to him in a vision and says, you're right. I'm your reward. To which a very Jewish, although Jewishness wasn't invented at this point, but a very ancient Near Eastern uh, Abraham says, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one that who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. Come on! Eliezer of Damascus? What the heck? So God comes and says, I'm going to be your very great reward. And what's Abraham say? What kind of reward is there? You haven't even kept your first promise like chapters ago. You said, kids, there are no kids, right? Now, God doesn't zap people like this. God is a big fan of something called chutzpah. You're right, this is the same guy that negotiates for a city later in the story. So, Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him and said, Eliezer will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up in the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, that's how many kids you will have. Now, Abram doesn't just sit back. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Now, that verse, I wish we had time. I mean, that, that is a massive thread pulled through the entire Bible into the New Testament. Then... God said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur, I guess, of the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram, but sovereign Lord, how do I know you're going to keep your promise? You've delayed on promise number one. How do I know you're going to keep promise number two? So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer. And I suggest you always answer. When someone says, well, how do I know you're going to keep your word? You just say, bring me a heifer. (laughs) Now, look at me. This is going to get really weird in about 30 seconds. Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, And arrange the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey, so Klingons, if you're a Star Trek fan. (laughs) Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. Now what the heck is going on here? So, Abram, I'm going to give you kids. Decades go by. Abram, I'm your very great reward. What can you give me? You haven't given me children. Oh, don't you worry about it, man. Look at the sands. That's how many kids you're going to have. Look at the stars. How many kids you're going to have. I'm going to give you this land. Well, how do I know you're going to give me this land? I mean, I just love. This feels like haggling, you know, or something. It's crazy. And God doesn't zap him, but answers. Bring me a heifer. And he lists five animals. Now, Abram knows what to do with those animals. Notice, God just said, bring me five animals. But Abram arranged them and cut them in a certain way because he knew that God was inaugurating something that the Old Testament calls a blood covenant. Back in the first century, not in the first century, back in the day, people didn't have um, notary publics. People did not have uh, law courts. So how would you ensure someone would keep their promise? Well, there were all kinds of different covenants. There were salt covenants. There were shoe covenants. There were were a blood covenant where you'd actually, and this is kind of gross, but you would actually cut each other and and suck each other's, a bit of each other's blood as a promise. So thankfully we don't do that anymore. Um, Unless you're a Twilight fan and then that happens all the time. This kind of blood covenant was very well known in Abraham's day. And this is the most serious covenant that you can make. So fire up the two pictures, if you would. So this is what you would do. You would take all of these animals and you would cut them in half a long way. And you would fold them over 
and dig a trench so that the blood pooled in the middle. Now, you wouldn't do this with birds, and, and there's symbolism be, behind that. But do you see how it would work? So it formed something called a blood path. Okay, next slide. What you would do is that you would walk through the blood. Now, here was the symbolism, all right? And pay attention, this is so important. The greater party of the two parties making the covenant would set the terms of the covenant. If the lesser party agreed, they would inaugurate a blood covenant like this. What would happen is that the greater party would go first. And as the greater party walked through the blood, the imagery was this. If I don't keep the terms of the covenant, what we've done to the animals, you can do to me. So this was a life, a pledge of life. You can walk through my blood if I don't keep the terms of the covenant. Make sense? And then the lesser party would walk through the blood, staining the hem of their robe. And they would say, if I don't keep my part of the agreement, then you can do this to me. That's a blood covenant. The most, obviously, the most serious kind. And there's some scholars who've actually pointed to examples in the Middle East where this has happened as recently as 100 years ago, where two families agree to a bridal union, but the husband or the wife is unfaithful, and the person that walked through the blood ends up killed with somebody stamping their feet through the blood. So this was like a very big deal. So God is invoking. Abram says, hey, how do I know? How will I know if he's thinking of me? Right? Whitney Houston, let's go. Some of the kids are like, who? Really? Really? Bruce is our marriage therapist, and uh, he and I, we're going to meet with Justina later. Just to work on, uh, no. So, so the idea is that Abram says, how do I know this will be true? And God initiates something called a blood covenant. Now, here is the very, very significant part. Notice that the story continues. Chapter 15, verse 12. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. Now, this is a visionary sleep. This isn't like what you're doing right now to me. Um, this, is, this is like you're, you're having a vision. And a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. This is a very Jewish way of saying he was terrified. Okay, why is Abram terrified? Because he's about to enter into a blood covenant with God Almighty. Now, what's God's promise to Abram? I'm going to give you a, give you a child who will be a nation. I will give you land. You will be a blessing. Correct? What's Abram's part? Well, faith, right? We've already seen that. Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But there was something else Abram was to do. Go ahead and put up Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be what? blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Now, some people think this is a separate covenant. Some really part people think, I think this is the same covenant expressed differently because this introduces the idea of circumcision, which you can explain to your children later. The idea, if you take this as one covenant, here's the idea. God has said, I'm going to walk through the blood and if I don't give you land, descendants, a child, and blessing, you can do what we've done to the animals to me, right? As if. Abram, his part, was to be loyal to God, expressed in circumcision and blamelessness. So why do you think Abram's terrified? Because if he or his descendants are not blameless... God gets to do what they've done to the animals to him. 
No, but notice this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. That's a reference to their slavery in Egypt. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. In the fourth, verse 16, in the fourth generation your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the people living here has not yet reached its full measure. Now, here, here, guys, this is the payoff. Are you ready? <laughs> yes. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Ta-da! Did you get it? It's beautiful. All right, now, keep that up. So, God, who, which party goes first? Right, the greater party, which in this case is God Almighty, of course. The smoking fire pot. Now, you, um, a fire pot was this clay jar that had holes in it, and you would take the embers of a previous fire, and you would put them in a fire pot, to keep them hot so that you could start another fire from that fire pot, all right? So the thing would be smoking all the time. One of the images that God uses, particularly in the Old Testament, of his presence is that of smoke. When he leads the nation of Israel through the wilderness, he's appearing uh, as a pillar of cloud, is another word for smoke. Uh, when he meets it with them at the top of Mount Sinai, uh, it's in the middle of smoke and fire and, and lightning and thunder, right? So, so God passes through the pieces first in the form of a smoking fire pot. But then what's the second image? At a blazing torch. Now the fire pot is not with the torch. It's, it's, they're not one thing, they're two things going together is the idea. The second thing is a blazing torch. Now, I know you're fascinated to know this. Who should walk through second in this scenario? Abraham should, right? Abraham is totally and devastatingly fearful because he knows if he puts his pinky toe into that blood, if he or his descendants is not blameless, they will be held accountable, correct? So what does God do instead? Here comes a smoking fire pot. Here comes a blazing torch. Now, in the Bible, fire is never used to symbolize Humanity, not once. It's always used to symbolize God. A burning bush. How does God lead Israel through the wilderness? A cloud by day and what at night? Pillar of fire. Right? When, when on the day of Pentecost, right? Fire comes down. I mean, God is a consuming fire. So, what is the image in Genesis 15? The image is that God himself walked through twice. Do you understand that? That the first walk through was God saying, I will give you a son, I will give you land, I will give you descendants, and if, we, and if you don't get those things, if I don't keep my promise, you could do this to me, right? Which we know couldn't happen. But instead of Abram walking through, it's God who walks through again saying, Abram, if you or your descendants isn't blameless, you can do what we've done to the animals to me. Do you understand that? The fact that God took upon himself the curses that would have been given to Abram or Abram's descendants. Some think that's the very moment when Jesus Christ is sentenced to die. That the whole idea of Jesus dying a bloody death becomes real. And obviously Jesus of Nazareth wasn't walking the earth at this point. But it's at this point when Abram says, God, how will I know? And God says, bring me a heifer. And God walks through the first time and says, if I don't keep my word, you can do this to me. And then God walks through a second time and says, if you don't keep your word, you can do this to me. Because think, I mean, oh my goodness, think about the significance of that. God provides what God demanded. God walked through this twice. 
Now here's why this matters to us. Are you ready? After this, the people become numerous. Abram doesn't have a son. Isaac, who has a son, Jacob, who has 12 kids, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel becomes a great nation. They're enslaved for 400 years in Egypt, just like God said. They come to the promised land. And at the promised land, right before they come in, they're given instructions about how to be God's people. And part of those instructions include the following. Every day at the temple, at the place where I will put my name, you are to offer sacrifices. And what kind of sacrifices? A heifer, a bull, a goat, a pigeon, a dove. The same five animals listed here are the same five animals they're to use in their sacrifices, which I just think is brilliant. Every day, among all the other sacrifices you're to offer, you're to offer two daily without fail. One at mid-morning, around nine in the morning, and one at three o'clock in the afternoon, mid-afternoon. And what you would do is that you would have a sundial, you'd be watching the sun, a priest would say, yes, it's time, a shofar would be blown from the pinnacle of the temple, which is a ram's horn, they would then slaughter the animal, sprinkle the blood, and they did this every day without fail, at nine in the morning and three in the afternoon. And the reason they did it wasn't because that gave them forgiveness, the reason they did it is because it was a reminder to the people to say to God, God, remember your promise written in blood. Remember the covenant you made with us. That if we were not blameless, if we fell short, you would take the penalty for that falling shortness upon yourself. Because that's what those sacrifices were for. And those sacrifices went on and on and on, year after year after year after year, until one particular Friday, when there was a brigand crucified between two criminals. King of the Jews, he was called, and so that was the sign put up over him. The crucifixion of Jesus began exactly at nine in the morning, which I find so interesting. And exactly at three in the afternoon, when the afternoon sacrifice was offered, Jesus of Nazareth, according to the scriptures, yelled his final words, it is finished. Now the word for finished, scholars tell us, is the word for a commercial transaction that's been paid in full. It's the word that merchants use for the fulfillment of covenants and contracts. So when Jesus says it is finished, yes, of course he means my suffering's finished and, and the temple is finished. But I also think he has in view the promise written in blood generations before, that's now been fulfilled. Because think about who has stomped through the blood of Christ as he's whipped within an inch of his life. And the Romans, think about the blood trail he leaves behind himself as he's carrying his cross through Jerusalem. And think about the blood that pulls at the bottom of his cross. I mean, why do Christians make such a big deal about the blood of Jesus? Well, this is why. Because the, the crucifixion was God keeping his promise. That if Abram and his descendants weren't blameless, that God himself would take the brunt of their transgression. That's the idea. Now, does this make sense so far? A little bit? Text questions if you're totally confused. Now you're thinking, okay, well that's really interesting. I've, I now know what a heifer is. Um, why does this matter? I need to shift gears just a little bit. Here's the reason this matters. For those of us who live as followers of Jesus, we are told that we're forgiven. That Jesus forgave us for everything we've done and will ever do. There are two kinds of people that kind of walk out of that conversation. One is, great, I can do anything, and it's already covered. The other kind of person doesn't really believe it's all been forgiven, and so they strive to be good, moral people, not because that's the best way to live, but because they still think 
they're bringing something to the God table. So they live with something called Christian guilt. Many of us are familiar with this concept, right? It's all the ways we fall short as Jesus followers. The way that Christians talk about this is the following. God loves you. God has forgiven you. And God will forgive you for the sins that you commit now, but you have to confess them before God. Confession is just agreeing with. It's just being honest about the junk, the darkness, the sin. The question becomes, though, well, what happens when I'm confessing to God for the 400th time? That question that was texted earlier, well, what happens for those of us who just keep sinning and we should know better? What happens? Right? Because I don't know about you. I, I, I'm much different than when I first started following Jesus, but there are still some things that just don't go away. And what do you do with those things? How do you relate to God? So let me tell you a story, all right? And this will end our teaching time. You guys, I can't tell if you're dazzled by brilliance or totally sleepy. But I was so fired up to have this conversation this morning. And I'm still not fired up anymore. Um, So my wife and I, we were married at this point, were we? Okay, she has no idea what I'm talking about. So we went to a conference, and, uh, and it was a, a 1,300 college kids. And the speaker gets up and said, hey, hey, all right, when you, we're all sinners. When you confess your sin before God, how many of you appeal to God's mercy? Or how many of you appeal to God's sense of justice? Well, he said, how many of you appeal to God's mercy? Every hand in the room went up. Yeah, God, be merciful to us. He said, how many of you appeal to God's justice? Nothing. He began to go through uh, a very complicated text in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Go ahead and put it up. Where Paul invokes the Genesis 15 thing very subtly. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement, a sacrifice that, that uh, is salvific, in other words, that, that reconciles us. God presented Christ as a, salv- uh, a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his what? Why, why was blood needed? Well, that was the, the promise was written in that. To be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his what? His righteousness. Now, this is one of those big old like Christian words. That, that has the nuance of justice. God did this to demonstrate God's justice. God presented Jesus to demonstrate his justice. What does that mean? Because God made a promise in Genesis 15 that God would take the penalty upon himself. So it's only just that God does that, correct? Correct? So this guy's point, and it was revolutionary to me, is that Christians should, know, should not ever appeal to God's sense of mercy anymore. They should always appeal to God's sense of justice. Why? Because the price has already been paid. God walked through twice, and God took the punishment upon himself, is the idea. Now, if that's so confusing, let me give you a dumb example that many of you have heard me use before. And it, it's regarding coffee. Remember this? You need some, Dave Penton. Dave Penton is really suffering through this right now. I'm proud of you for being here, dude. I'm proud of you for being here. You should stretch out and feel totally fine. So I hate coffee. Hate it. Hate coffee drinkers. Your breath pollutes the world. I mean, it just does. It's just awful. And, um, and I'm just beginning to tolerate coffee ice cream or maybe coffee cake. But, but like just regular coffee, I've, I've tried it. I don't like it. And so what was it, a decade ago when the Starbucks phenomenon hit, right, Southern California, and everyone was meeting at Starbucks and drinking their little things and had the little sleeves. And, and I felt very alone. I felt very less than. I felt very marginalized because I hated coffee. I hate it. I can't stand it. I've tried to like it. I don't like it. I just don't like it. And so everyone would meet at Starbucks, and I'd show up and, and order a water. 
which I just felt very uncool. And being cool is very important to me. And so, so I suffered for years under the tyranny of all the haves and their Starbucks and me with water until someone introduced me to chai tea, a chai tea latte. Someone introduced me to a warm drink that didn't taste like tea, but it was called chai tea, and it left your breath fresh and sweet. And it was very, it had a little caffeine to it, some sugar. I was like, and so I remember, I, I kid you not, I remember being so excited, right, to walk in to order a chai tea latte. I felt like it was a little, like, not as masculine as like, oh, I love a car, triple shot caramel thingy with a... So I was like, I have a chai tea latte, and I'd say it kind of softly. But, but what would happen is I'd have the sleeve there, and I could sip things, and I was like, I'm a part. I'm a part of this whole thing, right? So, so, so my, wife, my wife knows that I forget my wallet everywhere. And my, my parents think I do this on purpose when they take us out to eat. It is not true. I just forget my wallet. All right? I just do. It's, I, I just forget my wallet all the time. Now, this is a hypothetical, all right? This is a hypothetical. Suppose I drove through the same Starbucks every morning. Suppose I ordered a chai tea and some instant oatmeal every morning. Suppose I needed those things to start my day. And suppose I consistently forgot my wallet. I'm going to give you two scenarios, one appealing to justice, one appealing to mercy. All right? Let's say the barista's name uh, is, uh, we'll call him Justin my wife. So I come up to Justin, first day. Justin, I love a thing and a thing. And he's like, absolutely. And I say, oh, dude, I'm so sorry. I forgot my wallet. But Justin and I have a history. Uh, and day number one, he's like, okay, all right. Bring it tomorrow. Pay me tomorrow. I'll eat this one myself. Cool. Drive away. Day number two, Justin, it's Mike. Can I have a thing and a thing? Oh, no. Justin, I forgot my wallet again. Is it possible that you'd swallow this one and I will pay you back? You can imagine Justin going, okay. That's all. Please stop doing this. But what, this is the last time. Third day. Justin, can I have a... But I forgot my wallet again. What's Justin going to say? His mercy has run out. Right? He's sick of paying for me. And who would blame him, correct? That's scenario number one. Scenario number two is my wife is smart. My wife buys a $100 Starbucks gift card. And she doesn't give it to me because I'll lose it. But she gives it to Justin. <laughs> and she says to Justin, Whenever he comes through not having his wallet, use this, and then when it gets down to $10, I'll put more money on it. Okay? Here I come. Justin, can I have a thing and a thing? Dude, I'm so embarrassed. I forgot my wallet today. He's like, no problem. Dude, you want a muffin? (laughs) Well, of course I want a, yes, of course I want a muffin. Right? He does the gift card and it goes on. What's the difference in the two scenarios? Scenario number one, I'm appealing to his mercy, right? And that mercy is going to run out because he's eating the cost of this himself. In scenario number two, even though I don't know it, I'm appealing to his what? His sense of justice. Why? Because it would be unfair of him to charge me when the price has already been paid, when the cost has already been covered. So when those of us who follow God go for the 400th time before God to say, I've screwed it up again, on what basis do we go? Do we go, God, I hope for the 401st time your mercy extends? Or do you go like 1 John says, confessing your sin because he is faithful and just to forgive us? See, that's why it matters that in Genesis 15, there was smoke and there was fire that passed through a bunch of dead animals. Because the basis of your standing before God has nothing to do with your performance today or last night or yesterday. That the Christian guilt thing, there's no place for it. You actually 
have nothing to add to the one who said it is finished. Your moral righteousness, your doctrinal purity, your got it togetherness, you're not adding one bit to what's already been taken care of. And so the reason we go before God with confidence, not flippancy, but with confidence, is because the price has been paid. It's been taken care of. God himself provided what God himself demanded. And so when it says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world he gave, that's why. That's why. He was keeping a promise. So close your eyes if you would. Uh, I just want to pray uh, for us that this might sink in. I know it's a lot. I know it's thick. I know it's long. I know this was like much longer than we normally do. But I was so excited. This was revolutionary stuff for me. And so for those of you that are Jesus followers, I, I hope that's revolutionary stuff for you. And for those of you that aren't, I hope perhaps you get a glimpse into why the Christian story is the way that it is and why it's told the way that it's told. And so God, we ask in the name of this Jesus that you would reveal to us the depth of your great love, the depth of your justice, your grace, and your mercy, the fact that you will keep pursuing even in the midst of our darkness and rebellion. And that, God, we pray against all of the, the things in our world that uh, want to keep reminding us of how fallen and how short uh, we fall and how dark we are. Yes, we acknowledge those things to be true. We are still works in process. And yet, God, you give us permission to be confident before you. And so, God, out of that grace, we want to be people who are gradually being transformed more and more into your likeness. And so speak words, Lord, of, of hope and newness and life to us this morning to remind us of what's already true. Bless your name. Amen. 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 That was awesome. Hey, everybody. This is Justin. Hey. This is everybody. Hi, everybody. So we have a huge value for story. Um, and uh, letting people know you want to come up here? Yeah, sure. All right, let's come up here. Let's do it. Well, everybody's so and much so, bigger up here. Yeah, I know. This is it. They're better looking in person. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's, okay. You guys look great. Go ahead. Is this how it starts? Okay. <laughs> um, uh, so I... I wrote everything down just because uh, it's easier for me to do that. Um, so I'm just going to read and pretend like you guys aren't here. That's what I do. <laughs> right? Yeah. But sometimes I like to like, hold the book and point at each word as I read. Oh, nice. It's more efficient that okay. way, I hear. So, uh, hello, everyone. My name is Justin, and I play guitar here at Vox sometimes, and I serve on the welcome team. Um, I'm a fan of music, film, and intellectual conversation. I also like to eat delicious food and enjoy craft beer. I heard a woo over there. We will be friends after service. On top of playing guitar, I sing, uh, write songs, and perform from time to time. I also used to do worship ministry at a really big church. I have, le uh, I have a lighthearted nature, but I care very deeply about inclusivity I have the heart of an artist and an idealist mindset. I value integrity of character, compassion for those marginalized, and joy through connectedness and community. Wow. That was from my Facebook profile. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta use what you got, right? Okay, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so I, um, just don't use your Tinder profile, bro. No. <laughs> it's a really good picture. Oh, okay. Of course. Of course. I want to share. Uh, I, I try and, like, ham things up sometimes in order to kind of, like, bring a levity to, to heavy situations. And this is a particularly, uh, I, I think, hard thing for me because I'm not used to, to, like, just opening up to big people. I'm actually quite introverted uh, at times. So... Uh, uh, I guess here we go. 
I want to share a struggle I've had for as long as I can remember. Uh, and I hope that upon hearing like, some of my story, some of you will see that human brokenness and the journey towards healing can coexist together. I, I struggle with vulnerability in a church that I feel doesn't value vulnerability. Uh, when I say the word vulnerability, I'm trying to say being and embracing my full human self, even with my limitations and flaws. When we make mistakes, we are vulnerable. I struggle with accepting those mistakes and still loving myself. I feel like the American Evangelical Church also struggles with accepting people with vulnerabilities and when people make mistakes. I've seen churches react very poorly in moments when individuals or groups within their communities have expressed the need for understanding and grace. In other words, when these communities or individuals, individuals were vulnerable, the church failed to extend grace and journey with them in a way that showed love, care, and understanding. I grew up in an immigrant family in L.A. County. Uh, on the northern reaches of L.A. County, there's an area called the Antelope Valley. Palm Dale, what, what? <laughs> uh, that was my sister. My dad. <laughs> oh, that was just some rap. I was like, wow. <laughs> Uh, my dad is Egyptian, my mom is Filipino, and my sister and I are Phil-Egyptian. So, growing up, I was a very joyful kid. I had a sort of levity in my thoughts and actions. I was very playful and full of wonder. And despite my joyful demeanor, family life was very dysfunctional. My dad has narcissistic tendencies and expressed his frustrations through cyclical fits of rage. Um, for those of you who don't know what that is, uh, it's like this. It's similar to like addiction. And so addiction kind of comes in cycles. Um, and I'm learning this now, uh, being 30 years old. So I'm straying away from my, my text, so I'm going to go back to it. Uh, my dad was unstable and would look for reasons to explode mm. due to his rage addiction. Mm. This made for a troubling childhood and adolescence for me because when I excelled at something, the narcissist in my father would downplay my accomplishments and critique my performance. When I made mistakes, however, my dad would often use them as reasons to explode, cause mayhem in our household, and emotionally abuse me and my family. This did major damage to my self-esteem, and caused uh, great hesitation and dissonance in everyday life. In my first year of high school, I distinctly remember thinking that all my life, I was never good enough for my dad. And for some reason, I chose a journey to try and invalidate that thought uh, with as much as I could. Whew. I grew up with the notion that if I tried hard enough, I would win the affections of my dad and make him proud of me and never be wrong. Mm. And only within the past five years, like I said, has, have I really seen how much this has affected my life and my faith. So despite the abuse at home, we were a church-going family. I was exposed at Amer uh, to American evangelical Christianity very early. I was taught that if I said the right prayers, I read my Bible every day and did the right things, I would be happy and I would not go to hell and that the world would become a better place until we were raptured away from earth with uh, Billy Graham and Rick Warren. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to go, that's not a, a bad twosome. Right? It's not bad. Yeah. Yeah. Still trying to figure out if, if we'll go. Okay. So, so. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a narrative that I've... <laughs> This is a narrative that I have not found to line up with the teachings or actions of Jesus according to the scriptures. But because this is what I was taught in church, as well as what was required of me at home, I struggled and strove for perfectionism. It was of the utmost importance for me to be in the right as much as possible because it made me feel safe at home, and it made me feel safe in the church. 
I started pursuing my faith as a means of escaping my full and vulnerable humanity. Mm. Mm. I feel I was encouraged even uh, mm. in many of the churches I attended to continue living like this, especially if I believed the right things, memorized Bible, the Bible, and towed the party line of conservative Christian dogma. But the more I pressed into Christian religion in order to fix my imperfections, the more brokenness I saw in myself. The more I pursued this perfect version of my Christian self, the more exhausted and empty I felt. I also saw that the Christian formalities the church was teaching were, were actually pushing people away, specifically the people I saw Jesus and his disciples reach out to in the Bible. The religious authorities of our world have done this for thousands of years. We read in the Bible how the Pharisees, uh, the Jewish religious authority at the time, enforced and dictated holy laws within the Jewish community. They were meticulous in crafting laws in order to not be in the wrong and be seen as righteous. And yet, I find it interesting that Jesus was the most critical of these holy men because their ceremony and laws kept them from seeing and understanding the grace and justice of God. Uh, in fact, he even rebukes them, saying that they devour widows' houses and for show make lengthy prayers these men will be punished most severely. I threw in a Bible verse because I thought that was safe. Yeah, yeah. Okay. God, God is smiling. Okay, good. Right now. Because <laughs> you threw in a Bible verse. Otherwise, he would have been ticked. I'm good. Cross that off the list. Yep. I see now that my desire to be perfect in the eyes of God not only distorts the reality of God's true nature, it That's negates right. the message of unconditional love Jesus shares with everyone. Amen. This desire to create a facade of righteousness actually hurts me and people who need the love of Jesus most. There's no doubt in my mind that my experience was strongly influenced by my dad and how he treated our family. And it breaks my heart thinking of Justin in the past because I saw how much I was striving to justify my actions with God to somehow prove I was worthy of love. That somehow, if I did A, B, and C, that would get me into the God club and earn that good enough status. Oh. So, in wrapping up, I still struggle with the traumatic past of growing up with my dad. I still struggle with giving myself grace when I fail in love, when I succeed. Uh, I'm going to therapy for that, so. Oh, yeah, therapy's awesome. Is that your sister? That's my Is sister. That your sister too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He needs I, it. Is that what you were saying? She's <laughs> like, yeah, well, it's time. I struggle with accepting a brand of Christianity that claims to have all the answers to save people while it turns people away who don't accept its religious rules. I'm angry at the church for prioritizing its agenda of systematic evangelicalism before extending love to its community. And it bugs the crap out of me when people say, we're going to love on people. I don't know what that means. It, it sounds weird. I'm going to yeah. love on you. Yeah. I'm going to put love on you. It's a Christian cliche. We, we're just, we just love on each other. Just so he's practicing right there. That gentleman <laughs> was practicing, and, and I'm not sure that was okay. All right, we'll talk later. <laughs> so that, that bugs me, and I, I just hope that we would love people and we would make it real, that I would not have to make a euphemism for it, you know? Uh, yes. And so based on all my anger in those past couple sentences, I think it's safe to say I have trauma to work through with the church. <laughs> so, uh, in my struggle, in my vulnerability, I lean on the love I find in my family and friends, Christian and non-Christian alike. I have a great therapist who I can process my emotions with and repair some of the damage caused to my spirit. Also, I'm married to a wonderful, uh, probably the best person I know in the world, my wife. And uh, recently, upon listening to a certain podcast, that you, may be, that you may be familiar, uh, familiar with. <laughs> I was reminded of a passage where the Apostle Paul describes dealing with his shortcomings. Mm. Paul says that he heard God tell him, my grace is sufficient for you. I believe in my weakness, in my doubt, in my anger, in my suffering. When all is stripped away in my vulnerability, God's grace and love is, is sufficient for me more than I can ever know. Amen. Thank you for listening, everyone. Amen. Thanks, dude. All right, get back over there. All right, so typically we should be wrapping up the service. They're flashing green lights at me saying, wrap up, please.
Uh, that's because I rambled so much on the front side. So here's what we're going to do. We, we uh, absolutely want to make time for the Lord's Supper. So as always, um, we're going to have all the stations open. Uh, people who are uh, available to pray for you next to those stations. If you want to participate in financial worship, uh, there are participation boxes as, um, as you, or near these doors, I should say, not just as you go. Uh, and then... Um, and then we're going to spend just a brief time singing together. And uh, as you take the Lord's Supper today, we want to take it as a reminder of what the blood, when it says, this is my body and this is my blood, like why that matters. And it's, it's an appeal to the justice of God to say, God, you've paid uh, for the fact that we fall short. And so uh, we fight for our freedom here this morning, and that's what we do when we take the bread and we take the cup. So let me pray. Uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll do this together, and then we will let you go, you know, all in nine minutes. Um, <laughs> oh, God bless you. We love you, and we're so grateful um, that you war against those false images we have of you. And I thank you for Justin and his story. And God, I pray for his healing, um, that his view of who you are would change so dramatically that he'd be able to rest um, in the sacrifice of the one who said it is finished. And for all of us who are like him, who wrestle with this, God, may there be freedom in this place this morning, we pray. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters. Amen. Uh, go ahead and stand. We're thrilled that you are with us. And uh, particularly if you're new, welcome. We're, we're glad you're here. Um, as you go, I want to remind you, next Sunday, something happening involving cats. Um, and so 9 and 11, if you come at 10, which some of you will, uh, we will gently, gently remind you that you saw a video about this. And we will give you uh, some money for coffee and we will invite you back at the 11 o'clock service. So don't come exactly at 10 for free coffee, but I'm just saying if, you know, for those of you, we, there, we, there is grace. Um, uh, you also have, if you want, take some invites as you go. Uh, we want this to be a friends and family service, which means we'll really be emphasizing uh, the opportunity to people give us feedback on all of this. And, uh, and so let me bless you guys, and then we'll get you out of here. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give you peace. Bless you, bless you, bless you. Amen. So see you next week. Until next time. Have a great Sunday. Say hello to people as you go. Thanks for listening to the Vox Community Podcast. Participate in the Vox Community at voxoc.com participate.